What's up, everybody? And today we have an announcement. We have some big changes coming to the podcast, and it's starting with the next episode. What that means is next podcast, you're going to hear about what we're rolling out, why it's different, and I'm really excited to share it with you guys. So it's something we've been working on for a while. It's a new look, a new fill, uh, new talk. In fact, we've been working on this for months. So very excited about it. We have a huge lineup of amazing guests that we've already recorded. Very excited for you to listen to them. They're bringing the value. So before we deliver out our coming up episode next week, we thought that it'd be a great idea to do a recap of all the best moments so far. Obviously, we can't include all of them, but we're highlighting in this episode some of just the moments that we thought were really important and great moments to highlight now. Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. We have an awesome guest today. Um, he's one that I know so many of you guys uh, already know. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He's just, I've been so impressed with him. He's Rob Bailey. And a lot of you may know from him from anything from YouTube or his music or Flag North Fell, his company, or seen him on social media, everything he's doing. He is just killing it on everything and on every level. Seeing the evil businessman, and I sort of like learned the hard way of business school, and then learning what I took from freelance and QVC, I started my own line called Flagner Fail, um, which was a hand-printed clothing line. I only had $400. So I bought $400 in product. I hand-printed it. I uh, used the fact that it was extremely limited. It was hand-printed. Everything had imperfections. So it was just very unique. And we created a product that sort of the fitness industry had not seen, you know, it, it had been done in other industries. Like, um, I don't know if you guys remember like Nasteen, um, from Philly back in the day, he used to sort of hand decorate shirts and sell them for a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, it would sell out instantly sort of like the Supreme model now. Yeah. And we, we fell into the brand where, because I was doing everything, I didn't know how to web develop. I didn't, I didn't really, I was doing everything. So if I had a thousand people come to my website, my website would crash. And it would be down for like 20 minutes. So I'm looking at that as like, this is a catastrophe. You know, yeah. I have a thousand people that want to buy right now. And my website's just loading for, so I'm like panicking. I'm freaking out. I'm putting up like, I'm sorry messages. And looking back on it now, it's like, well, no, that's what built the brand. You know, people would do, they would sign on and load up their cart and then buy it all. And people were buying five bags and then listing them on eBay before they even received them. Like, so there's this really cool hype around the brand. In the same respect, Dana sort of kept climbing around the industry until she got to the top, which she won Miss Olympia. And she, I think she's one of the most famous females still to date in the industry or well-respected. Fame's a weird thing now. Um, but, you know, we just sort of did everything on our own. We built this brand. And then once the Flagner Fail brand clicked and I sort of realized this is how you make a product. This is how you make people believe in a product. You tell a story. This is somewhat how you manage staff. And this is how you bring something to market, how you ship everything. I realized that I could start some other brands. So we started a brand called Run Everything, which is a, uh, a supplement line. Um, 
We've started uh, DLB Daily, which is like an online uh, subscription site that's only $7 a month where she puts out a workout every day. She puts out daily content and sort of like leads you through your workout, which since the home workouts, since everyone's quarantined, well, some people are quarantined. She's now doing like a dumbbell only workout, a workout with no weight in your living room and then a gym workout. So Did if you don't know what to do right now in quarantine. Yeah. So, so we picked up a lot of members. I mean, there's a lot of other competition on the market. Right. I think that one of the things we face with her is being that she is a female, a lot of men don't want to follow a female. And then we also run into the problem that she's a very muscular female. So even though she's an expert, I think she scares off a lot of girls that are like, Whoa, I don't want to look like that. And it's like, well, don't worry. You'll never look like this. This is literally 12 years yes. never taking a break and being on diet every single day. Like, but you know, instead of looking at the expert and yes. saying like yes. they can mold it to me, I think, so it's, it's a little limiting, but we did see a giant spike in that. Um, I have a couple other brands that I'm sort of like a silent partner on, um, that I do a lot of the, you know, fulfillment formulation, uh, sourcing, you know, website build out, help with creative digital advertising, everything like that, that, I'm good at that. So I, I support a lot of other brands. Uh, I just bought a fitness expo in Utah. Um, really? Yeah. Is this so FitCon? FitCon. Yeah. 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 FitCon, oh, yeah. Super pumped about that. Super pumped. Um, we just bought that, which is a weird time. Awesome. Um, being that all expos are canceled, but, uh, I sort of have a lot of pride in the fact that we're moving it outside. We're taking precautions and we're still doing it. Yeah. So I don't think everyone's going to fly in, but I think we're going to make a pretty decent impact in Utah. Uh, we moved it outside the city. So it's, um, we're, our rules are a little bit more lax and, and we're going to have like a water park. We have shade tents. Um, we're doing a digital expo, which, um, other industries have done like Comic-Con has done, um, to where, you know, you have digital rooms, a lot like the zoom rooms that you can yeah. come into and you can witness the expo. You can get promo codes. You can sort of get the sample pack. You can get everything that you get from an expo and you can live in Germany. Um, you can do one-on-ones with athletes. You can, you know, recorded one-on-ones that you get to keep, you know, so it's a little more interactive than the normal photo. So we're doing a lot of really cool things with that. Uh, what else do I own? I'm, I'm in a band. Yeah. Um, which is very strange. Uh, I'm actually, I guess two bands now. Um, same thing. It was, that was just working around an obstacle. That was, uh, maybe the year 2012 or 13. Um, YouTube started demonetizing my videos. So we were making maybe four to $5,000 a month on Dana's YouTube through, uh, AdSense. And all of a sudden it just went away and the video started getting blocked. And I was like, what's going on? They were like, well, you're using, pantera asshole like mm -hmm. you can't <laughs> just use music so i saw so i was like well what do i do i like i do everything else i'll just make it so we made a song called work hustle kill okay and hold, hold on so they demonetized you because you were using other people's music and you just thought oh that's fine i'll, I'll just, just make i'll go make my own i'll just music. make my own music and that song that's dope. what i've done with everything like work hustle kill no, like that was 20, <laughs> that was that's the shit no like, like seriously yeah. i'm a huge yeah. uh skier i like extreme sports i like you know base jumping, speed fly, things like that. And uh, I had a buddy that was out and he's like, oh yeah, this is this is what I listen to every time before I get ready to go to the mountain. Yeah. And I heard that song and I was like, who this the crap is this? This is, this? This is yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. We, uh, we sort of took a different approach to music on that. And we didn't, 
so we started making the music so that we could use in the background of videos. And our original one was, um, it was like an animal video, which is a supplement line. And I remember I made the video, I edited it that day and I got up that night, which animal then blocked me from coming to their, to their events because I would put out content so fast that their guys would take a week to put it out and my video would get all the traction. <laughs> so what I found out was if you're creating content and you beat everyone to the market, you know, a lot like unfortunately the mainstream media right now, yeah. but if you're first, if you're first to the internet with it, you're, you're in charge of the branding of the event. You know what I mean? And they saw that and they were like, Hey Rob, you're not allowed to film anymore. Wow. What? Like these views are getting a quarter million oh. views. These videos are getting a quarter million views in the first week. So instead of working with me, they sort of blocked me, which it's fine. But people took the audio from the video, downloaded it, looped it, and then put it up on the bodybuilding.com forums as like a free download. Mm -hmm. So my Google alerts started going off with my name. And I was like, wait, people want to hear this music? So we released the single on iTunes. We did like 1,200 downloads the first month, which you get 70 cents per download. So we got a check for $1,000. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> We have Brittany right exactly. here with us. How's it going, Brittany? How's it going, guys? Excited to be here in person this time. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. So my name is Brittany Arneson, or if you follow me online, at Investor Girl Britt. And I guess I really got started in real estate when I was super young. So I was working on my mom's rental properties, just doing some renovation work here and there. She'd be like, here's a paintbrush. Go help me out. Go fix something or, you know this yeah. renovation work with us so you know i got started pretty early on and um when i was 18 i bought my first house so that was my Dang. first rental property and so i've been in the game 10 years now mm -hmm. as you're going down this path another thing is like times change yeah things change you grow and work and i find that all entrepreneurs investors everything it's the change and where they thrive because they can identify opportunities and they can then move quickly to take advantage of them Right. Um, and this is an important aspect when looking in this because our economy value proposition, all this is very dynamic. Right. And how I go about things today is very different than I did 10 years ago, five years ago. Right. Definitely 15 years ago. And so my goals never change. No, that doesn't change. But um, when certain opportunities present itself and I've grown beyond other ones, I can move on, pivot. Do it. I don't do anything storage like I did when I started. Mm -hmm. bigger markets, bigger facilities. We sold off all the other ones, right? Um, totally different management style, all that kind of stuff. Well, and your whole investment strategy changed where totally. you thought like, oh, I'm going to have a ton of different, like just small facilities yep. across all this. I mean, all of that changed as you, and again, as you go through those processes yeah. and learn. And it was going to be like a side item to insurance. I was never going to, like <laughs> I was going to have this big insurance company or anything like that. Yeah. And that totally flipped and mm -hmm. reversed. And I think the good investors, the good entrepreneurs pivot well mm -hmm. with that. And mm -hmm. you're like in a huge transition now mm -hmm. where you've identified the change that you're looking at and your next level as an investor, right? You've been very successful. You have all these houses, the small apartment building, right? You've achieved financial freedom. You, you have what most people would always want, right? Mm -hmm. You go wherever you want, live wherever you want. You go to Hawaii for a while. You want to do a project out here because we're working on stuff, which we're going to get it to. You come out here so we can work stuff. And then you can move to go do where you could, you got like the true freedom, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you're not satisfied. That's not enough, right? And you're moving to this next level. So talk to us a little bit about, because before we even got on the podcast, I was like, hey, Brittany, we really want to dive into this. 
because so many of us see the beginning or we see mm. the end, yeah. but not where to go and how to transition. So mm. walk through where you're at now mm-hmm. and why you're there. Yeah. Okay. So this has been a huge, huge uh, transition for me in the last six months, especially, but it's very exciting because, so I have 27 doors, um, the mix between singles and apartments that's running passively back in Canada. Cause I hired out all property management, all bookkeeping, all of this uh, at the beginning doing all of that myself, which is good because it gave me a lot of skills and I learned a lot of things, lots of things that I did not want to do. So that was important too, right? Yeah. Like you kind of almost have to do a lot of different things to Mm -hmm. figure out what you're good at and what you like. So we have talked about that a lot before too. But then I I was finding myself um, just being stuck in this job of the renovation stuff. And I was so wrapped up, so busy all the time in the day to day that I couldn't like lift my head up to like figure out, you know, where I wanted to go. So that was that transition. It was that realization. Okay, well, I'm building myself this job. I'm stuck to these properties because I'm doing the renovation and doing this work myself. So what do I have to do to get out of this? So it was a lot. There's a book, Who Not How. So that was a really good book I read over the summer that kind of gave me that little bit of a uh, mindset shift into hiring out my people and all this, which is very difficult. And very it's something difficult. me and you, AJ, have talked about so much. And you show me your systems and all this awesome stuff. And I, and I had this limiting belief all the time. Well, I'm not a business person. I don't know how to do that. I'm not, you know, smart enough. I'd always yeah. say that sort of a, you know, repeat negative circle in my head. But, yeah. you know, getting out of that and stepping away, that's not true. It just yeah. isn't. That's just something we tell ourselves yep. because we're scared or whatever it is. So I think for me, it was just taking a step away and reflecting and seriously thinking about what I wanted to do. And it wasn't as much as I do love the DIY and the renovations and all that. It wasn't where I wanted to be. I always imagined having like this passive portfolio and I was always attracted to commercial real estate, but I just didn't know how to get there. And it was a long period of time before I could do that. So that was a big pivot this year. And it, it really did happen, just a few mindset shifts and having great friends and mentors in the industry. I mean, that was amazing. So all that came through, by the way, through Instagram. Yeah. So our mutual friend, Brandon Turner, invited us to a mastermind as well. We, a group of 20 of us got together and had these brainstorming sessions, which I feel so lucky to be a part of and everything. I was just, you know, that was a huge game changer for me, just being around people who are at that next level. So for those listening, you know, that is important to have those, you know, surround yourself with the people you want to become, right? Cody Sanchez, welcome. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so excited. Talk biz, do deals. This is like a threefer. Yes, I love it. I get I get way too into this stuff. It's like I, I always tell them, like, this is the greatest game in the world, and I love playing it. So there's obviously, right, game makers. Who are these people? How do they get there, right? And what's going on? And I, and I just, it was my curiosity was so strong that, and it put in, it put, installed something in me to either I can control the game or I can be a part of that game in a really fundamental way. And, or I just have to get left with the scraps. Real or not, right or not, didn't matter, but that was the impression, kind of like what you're talking about. And I was just so curious after that. And I came back to America and it was like, I could not stop reading everything about finance, about money. And how did this happen? And who are these people? 
underestimate or underappreciate what we have in the US, right? You come back here and you're like, oh my gosh, like you can actually change social and economic stratospheres. And don't get me wrong, like, are we perfect? No, far from it. But I don't know anywhere else where it's as easy as it is here. Again, it's not easy, but it is easier here than anywhere else to move up the ladder. It's possible. um, It's not possible. Yeah. Like, and we, that's, that's and whenever exactly right. you hear people complaining about, oh, we have the problems and we should be like another country. I'm like, have you been to any other countries? Have you ever lived in other countries? You think social mobility is some, like there's some fantasy land where there's this great social mobility. I'm like, no, hands down, this is the best place to have social mobility. I mean, my father came from like extreme poverty in the deserts of Idaho, didn't even have running water. Right. And I'm like, that would never be possible for those people that lived in the favela of Brazil. It's not. They don't even have an ability to do it where it was for him here. Oh, you're exactly right. I mean, my the reason I got into buying small businesses even was my uncle, Ed, was a sharecropper um, from Arkansas. And he, you know, didn't have running water, had like six or seven different siblings, six or seven siblings that died, uh, also. So his parents had had like 12, 13, 14 kids. Um, and he eventually built up this plumbing business in, um, in Arizona that was a multi, multi-million dollar business. I think they did like $7 million in revenue and like two or $3 million in profit. And so he, when he went to retire, he had no financial literacy. And so he just shut down the business. He was like, I'm tired. I want to go enjoy life a little bit. I want to fly my little, you know, Cessna. And, um, and so he closed down the business instead of selling it. And he could have had a, a nest egg of like anywhere from let's call it, you know, five to six to maybe even more um, in millions of dollars. And he just had no idea. And so I, I kind of was like, wow, there are all these you know, retirees, and there are all these um, business owners that don't even realize that this asset that they've spent all their life growing, they can sell because Johnny or Susie wants to be on YouTube, you know, and they don't want to run a plumbing company. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, that's the beautiful part here too, is ownership is possible. We have this amazing thing called debt, which Mm -hmm. when I grew up, I don't know about you, AJ, but I used to think debt was bad, right? I was like, don't have debt. I have zero. I mean, I was making good money on, on Wall Street, bought houses in cash, cars in cash, like yep. an idiot, because I thought it was a good thing to have no leverage. And I didn't realize that if you have good leverage, it's just money working for you. Um, and so those are all the things like half of what I've spent my time obsessing about it, contrary and thinking is like the uneducation of all of us. Like, yes. What do I wish not only I had learned, but what do I wish I had unlearned? Because it is so wrong about making money and freeing your mind. Well, and, and you're exactly right. And I love people are like, it feels like the wealthier or the rich is playing by different rules. And I'm like, no, they have the same rules. You just don't understand the rules. That's the problem. But their rules are identical. You just don't know about them. And so it's not a fact that they have, they're playing a different game. They're doing anything else like that. It's you just don't know how the game is played. So you're just a pawn in the whole thing when you could be a queen, right? Or a king. It's just like, it's, and it has in other countries, we don't have that. They actually are playing by different rules. Like they are completely different worlds those people live in. Now, where did you grow up? So you you mentioned your uncle here, but where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Arizona. So family's immigrants, uh, 
my father's family's from Spain, but I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. So like not that dissimilar to Idaho in some ways. And that I think we were so lucky to have what I'm going to guess was a quasi non-traditional uh, upbringing um, because, you know, I was outside all the time. I was yes. hunting. I was, you know, in nature with my dad sort of figuring out like, what does it mean? What does mortality mean? What does it mean to take a life? What does it mean to do physically hard things? Um, I wasn't obsessed at all with social media and email and stuff being in my face because we didn't have that. And I think that's a huge huge blessing. Um, so I feel really grateful. I think some of the best thing that we can all do is like go do hard physical things because then you realize that, um, really nothing else matters. I mean, we were just talking about some of the physical stuff you've been through and continue to go through. And I mean, I just, even, I was hiking this mountain a few weeks ago and I was dying. I mean, it was Mount Baker. We had crampons on and ice axes. And it's like a snow blizzard. I can't see it must step in front of me. We're on this line all together. People are falling in crevasses. We're like pulling people out and people are hurting their knees. I mean, it's a nightmare. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? I like my life, like get off this mountain. But by the end of it, I was like, you know what? I'm so glad I did this because now I'm so much less stressed about the small everyday things. We have the one and only Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets. And, you know, I don't know that there's anyone that has ever talked to, interviewed, and discussed with so many successful real estate investors and business owners as Brandon Turner hosting the Bigger Pockets podcast. And he really brings in that wealth. And that knowledge, Brandon's such a good guy and he's so fun to talk to. How do you go about finding your deals? So you yeah. you got this deal flow. Where do they come from? How do you, how do you find deals? Yeah. yeah, really. It's the same thing anybody does to find deals. I always say there's a four-step process everybody does. Step one, you have to get leads coming in. The more leads you get in, the more deals you can then, the second step, which is analyze. So you get leads, then you analyze them. The more deals you analyze, the more offers you can make. I call that pursuing because it's not always a formal offer and I don't want to like, make people think it's always a formal offer. Sometimes it's a conversation with a seller, but you got to pursue it. You got to go after it. You're never going to get that wife if you don't ask her to marry you, right? Like you got to ask. And then the if you do those consistently, LAP, leads analysis pursue, leads analysis pursue, and you're constantly optimizing each part of that, you're going to get the last and final step, success, LAPS. So for us, it was, okay, how do we get leads? Well, let's do a couple things. One, let's start contacting all the biggest real mobile home brokers, the guys that are doing the business in the mobile home park world. So we asked around, who are they? Found who they were, got on their email list, started having conversations with them, getting them to know who we were, what we wanted, getting very clear. Uh, this is just a tip for anybody. If you're trying to get into real estate, like get really clear on what it is you want, right? Like, Again, you might not know what it is. It doesn't really matter. It's more important to make a decision than to make the right decision. So, hey, we want mobile home parks with 50 units, between 50 and 100 units. And we want them in this population area. And we want this. Because all of a sudden, then the mobile home park brokers start going, oh, yeah, well, let me think on that. And they know you're legit. If you're just like, yeah, I'm looking for a good deal. No one's going to take you seriously because everyone's looking for a good deal. What does that mean? So get very specific. So anyway, we gave our brokers exactly what we wanted to a T, what we were looking for. And again, We've changed that now. Like it's more important to make a decision because now we made a decision that we would want 50 to 100 units. Now I don't want anything under 100 units. I've decided that. Like I've looked at 50 to 100. We're buying a few. They're fine, but they're going to be more work than the ones that are 100 or 200 units. In fact, probably when I buy 150 unit, 200 unit, I'll probably be like, oh, I don't want anything less than 300 units. You know, so like we're going to learn along the way, but you never learn if you don't go along the way, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I got two quick so, questions yeah. for you. Go ahead. So I'm obsessed with like 
opportunity. And I believe like creating an ecosystem of opportunity, yep. which it naturally comes up and it thrives, right? And it grows everything like that. We talk about making these goals and you specifically talked about identifying what you want. I always think there's a strange correlation with is what you want driven by the opportunity that you have, or are you creating the opportunity by what you want? Does that make sense? It it does. And and I don't know that there's an answer because I'm just hearing you speak. I'm like, yeah. You know, is are you actively? I mean, you're kind of doing both at the same time, right? But did you get into this space because you saw opportunity and you met the right people, and then you decided that that's where you wanted to go, or was it a pre like defined? You said no, I want to go down this road, and then you cultivated opportunity. Because I think a lot of people really don't understand. They don't understand how to get to that point of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think, I think definitely you're right. It is both. It's all those things. Uh, I think that the more clarity you have on where you're going, the more everybody else gets around you and wants to support your vision. I found that to be true my entire life. Like your vivid uh, finish vision. Yeah. Like my vivid vision. Like the reason I have like this big poster of exactly where I'm heading in the next three years, cause it gets people fired up and it gets me fired up. And I'm like, I know exactly. In fact, as soon as we get off this call today, we rented a, um, uh, a uh, conference room downtown Kihei, Hawaii here and me and Ryan and my guy, Mike, who's on the team. And then Brian and Lance are calling in and my buddy Greg is coming and we're just doing like a big powwow. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to read that vision again and get everyone lined up on the vision. This is where we're headed. And once you have kind of a clear vision, people want to, and whether or not it's the universe wants to conspire to help you, I've heard that phrase before, or whether it's just your own will or, you know, just the energy that you create around you, it tends to just amplify it. So like my goal was to get, my goal was to buy one park this year, just one park this year. And I'm currently on a contract for eight of them and I'll probably close on five of them. So like just by, cause once you get all those things aligned and work in the right direction, I think that the opportunity just arises through that, but it wouldn't have done it if I wouldn't have taken off on the plane to go back to the course correction, like you'll course correct and you'll get somewhere, but you got to take off. And so you have to just do something first and get that momentum going. So I'm not sure if that answers that question, but yeah. No, 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 it does. And I and I love those, for those of you that haven't heard, when we were down there in Hawaii, you kind of walked me through that uh, vivid vision. And explain real quick why that's different than a regular goal. Because I think not sure. only is it different, I think it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. I'm such a big believer in this. It came from a book called The Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold, And he basically makes the point that you you might have an idea of where you're headed in your business, but why not paint it vividly and three-dimensional so everyone can see it? And I'm, I'm not mean literally painting, though some people could. The idea is you take like, again, not necessarily what, you know, what's the right thing for me, but what would be great? So I worked backwards and I sat on a plane ride. I did this on like a six-hour plane ride from the mainland to Hawaii. And I just wrote everything that I thought would be great to have in, in, in my business. Like, here's how many employees we have. Here's what the media thinks about us. Here's what... Uh, I have a New York Times bestseller, which helps us raise money. I mentioned in there that we do these mastermind groups in Hawaii a couple times a year. And that helps me build networking and connect with people. And so I did all these things that were like, what would be cool? And I put it into a... And there's different ways to do it. I have a buddy who did a vivid vision and he made it like a trifold pamphlet about his company. And it's always written in the present, but in the three years in the future. So like open door capital is blah, 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 even though that's, it's a future document. So I decided I would write mine from the perspective of a newspaper article. I really like that idea a lot is let's say the New York times came out and did an article on me. So it even begins with like, 
Maui, Hawaii, December 31st, 2021. You know, Opener Capital is an investment firm unlike any you've ever seen. The founders were in, you know, board shorts and tattoos and blah, blah. It goes through this almost like written like a newspaper would write an article and how great this company is. And, you know, we, we go twice a year. We do humanitarian. We do one humanitarian like outreach uh, like event with the whole team, completely company paid once a year. We also do one just fun adventure trip once a year. We don't do that right now, but that sounds cool, doesn't it? Like go like serve kids and like under, you know, like in poor areas. But then also, hey, we're also going to do a trip. We're going to go to Cabo and just have a great time water skiing. So uh, the vivid vision lines up like what you kind of have in your head and puts it into a 3D form that you could be like, that's it. And what it also does, it gets everybody around you going, oh, now I get what you're doing. So employees, spouses, family, friends. And it gets people pumped up. Potential employees, like you show a prospective like employee. Yeah, this, this is where we're headed. It's not like some cheesy, you know, mission statement on the wall that says like, we are going to be the number one real estate company in this town. Nothing wrong with that, but it's hard for people to get fired up about that. Today, I have my dad in here with me. First and foremost, your new book is out, which is awesome. It's on Amazon and tell them about the book. The book that is recently released that I wrote is entitled the right kind of rich and um it's uh kind of a story from the poverty level i grew up in and that whole situation and how to escape uh poverty and to for people to realize that um the mindset of poverty can be eliminated by anybody and how we've uh, been able to eliminate that and go from where uh, we are today from where I was into, uh, you know, multi-million dollar uh, business. The idea that there's less social mobility today, like than when you lived is, is laughable. Like when, when, when you grew up in rural Idaho, uh, in the high deserts, right? You didn't have a dad and a mom. You lived in poverty, poached for food. You worked you know, uh, uh, cutting down trees and getting lumber to sell, right? All that kind of stuff. Their social mobility, um, I, I mean, it was just non-existent. I mean, not even the place where you lived. It didn't even like, I mean, even me growing up in Idaho, wealth was an abstract thing. It didn't, this wasn't California. This wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't really when you looked at that social mobility part, right? That just, it didn't really exist. It didn't exist right. for you and it, did, it didn't exist here. And I think that's what's important for people to realize and why it's so powerful. Because how I view it is like, if you could do it in that time, anybody can do it today. Right. And not, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that it's fun or I'm not saying that any of those kind of things. But it is possible. Yeah, it really is. It's um, it's challenging because the mindset that uh, in, in poverty, as I look back, I you don't recognize or realize all the time or most of the time how you what you got to do to escape. Mm -hmm. You and that's how I look at it. I escape that world, yeah. especially in a small rural town, small area. You're right. There's limited opportunities and limited chances when my father passed away at 10 when I was 10 years old and then um, 
my mother again had to work. She worked at the school cafeteria at first and then uh, started working at the hospital. So we were home a lot. My younger brother dropped out of school at 14, got involved with drugs, all that stuff. My older brother, uh, same thing, got involved with drugs. He made it through high school. But I was the first in my family to go to college. And that was, uh, you know, a whole different mindset. Uh, my parents did had you never have subsidies for that. Did you get like Pell grants or? Uh, I did not. Um, in terms of, I qualified for full tuition scholarship. So you got and a then scholarship. I, then I did get um, like a Pell grant or whatever yeah. it's called for to help me with my housing costs. Yes. And between those two was the only way I was able to go. Yeah. And um, because the you couldn't take out debt at that time. If, if it was, I didn't know about yeah, it, it didn't exist. Yeah. And thank heavens I had folks in high school, counselors and stuff that helped me. I didn't even know how to apply for a scholarship. Yeah. I didn't even know how to apply for college. Well, and, that, and that's yeah. the poverty cycle. You yes, don't know is. what you don't know. Yeah. And like I, and you know, that's how, why I bring it back to me thinking about you was when I was in Brazil and living in the favelas. And it was like, they, they you don't know what you don't know. Right, right. It's it's not like a oh just you know pull your boots up right like no like the there's no way even if there is a way like in Brazil obviously there isn't even a way for those people to get out. Um, it's that's the norm. The not the norm is that you're not living in poverty. Um, but it doesn't even matter. They don't even know what they don't know. Right. So you know to think of like oh well just. You know, it's easy, I think, for people to look at people in that situation and say, well, why don't you just do this, 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 and this? Because you can see the path, right. but for them, they can't. So you had to find that path on your own. Yeah, I did. And uh, fortunately, I had good mentors and folks that helped me. Um, I had different jobs in high school. I worked at a shoe store, had a great mentor there that helped me too and taught me. You know, you didn't make a lot of money. I remember my first job around 15, 16 years old. I think I was making $1.75 an hour at a grocery store. And um, and I think around then that was around minimum wage. And so you, you made enough to be able to, you know, have a little spending money or pay for gas for your car and things like that. But you don't make enough or have opportunities to be able to escape that poverty cycle there. So it was through mentors, helpers that got me and helped me get to college and out and me with the mindset, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of this world to find a new life. And that's what helped me escape that environment and having the attitude of I want a different life than yes. this life. Well, and I think it's important that you cultivated the situation that got you out. You went out to find those people. You actively looked for people that were doing things differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same today as it is anytime for anybody. Like you had, you knew you had to change your circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody should know that. That should be something, I don't like this circumstance, I need to change it. And that's something people can do. They can actively work to change their circumstance, whether that is going to college or whether that's hanging out just with better friends, right? And you did that starting out. You wanted to hang out and be around people that lived differently and made better choices, right? Um, and then that puts you on the road for your mentors. 
I have Luke Caldwell with me from Boise Boys and his company, Timber and Love. Um, uh, dude, you're probably by far one of my most requested guest because everybody's like you're in boise why haven't you had them on the show i'm like well, there you go we're here. Point. now you're here and um you know you you have an amazing story you're doing amazing things um i i like literally it's hard i was like we we just have to go straight into the podcast because i'll just talk to you about <laughs> this stuff all day long um so why don't you real quick tell people about First of all, you have your your television show. You have Timber and Love. You do uh, real estate investing. Um, walk people through what exactly uh, you do and are currently doing. Now. Sure. So I guess maybe just a quick synopsis is, you know, I wasn't really involved in real estate. I was actually a touring uh, musician and was all over the country, kind of seeing unique things. And we actually toured all over and. Uh, I think we played 13 different countries and then every state but Alaska. So I was like, I was out and about and and definitely exposed to a lot of things that I found interesting, creative, like design wise. So I've always been interested in design and creativity and I love touring and experiencing new places. And so I always would kind of leave and come back and be like, gosh, Boise, we should have some of this type of yeah. vibe here or whatever. And so I think there was always this kind of curiosity with real estate um, to some extent. And uh, it was probably about 10 years in, um, and really about 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I, we wanted to adopt and we had two kids of our own at the time. And, you know, I was, I was a musician. I wasn't making like really anything other yeah. than, you know, providing for, you know, the simple things in life and definitely didn't have $40,000 sitting around to adopt. And, and I remember thinking like, I, you know, my grandpa was in real estate. I know you can make money, you know, in real estate and flipping houses, but I never really had looked into it. And I just said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to flip a house and help you know, pay for an adoption. Cause I gotta, I gotta figure this out. I don't know how to, I, I know that you can come up with a lot of money that way. And I never yeah. was motivated by money in my life. I yeah. always was just doing things that I was passionate about. Yeah. And so I never even really, it never crossed my mind. I was a very simple person just doing things I was interested in. And so I was interested in adopting. I knew I needed to make money. So my wife and I, we bought a house um, at auction. We partnered um, actually with my, my dad on it, got it and just took it on. I'd never done it before. And, um, I just really love the process and, you know, it was like, how do I add value? And I want to do something that looks cool. And I, my whole intention from the very get go was like, what would I want to live in? What yeah. would I think is, is it would be a cool spot for me and my wife to be in. And so we did it. We made, you know, a good amount of money on it after we split everything and almost paid for the entire adoption through that first, you know, flip. And I yeah. realized like, wow, like that was fun. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. And it just started this whole, you know, four kids, we, we've adopted five kids now and I just kept flipping houses to pay for the adoption and it turned into a TV show and all this other stuff. Yeah. And it was just like a whole new career path. I was never planning on. And, um, it, it's been fun. We don't control the economy. The market will go up and down. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to go up and down with the economy. We hedge against it with products, locations, um, all of those things that are, that they are, uh, you know, kind of timeless yeah. things, right? They're, they're, they're not consistent. going away. It may not be fun for a while. That's okay. Yeah. If right? I have to rent those places but, out for two years, I will. Yeah. And exactly. I'll rent them as high end nightly rentals and they'll rent well. Exactly. And so it's, I'm hedged against that downside. So that way we can still take advantage of opportunity and capture the upside, even in unknown markets. I have my friends, Brandon Turner and Brittany Arneson here today with me in the office, and we've been having some amazing discussions. I think this is an amazing podcast. You guys are going to absolutely love it. So here it is. 
So I would like yeah, eat, eat breakfast, breakfast yeah, early, yeah. <laughs> eat lunch at 11 a.m., which was also breakfast, and then have yeah. some pieces of toast in my purse for later for supper. And then yeah. I had free food all day. But I still have that feeling uh -huh. where there's free food. I gotta eat it. I yeah, have which, to eat it. Yeah. Which brings up a really interesting point is our identities are usually, are most likely formed in our childhood. I think it's yes, true. Right? In our teenage years and our childhood. So the question that we, we need to ask ourselves and ask anybody watching this video, right, is, what identity did you adopt as a child that you need to let go? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you need to let go of right now to get to the next level of who you were meant to be? And if we can like really spend some time thinking about that and journaling, like that's step one. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what identity have I internalized? Yeah. I do eat food. Because identity is choice. Yeah, mm -hmm. identity is a choice. I mean, we have things that happen to us that create our identity, mm -hmm. but it's because we're letting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can change all sorts of things in your life. Yeah. And, it, it's funny because when I'm sure you see, you look at your kids and it's just like, like awe-inspiring. Like you yeah. are amazing. You can do anything. Yeah. Like it's just like the potential and all the good and everything else, right? But yet we don't reverse, we, we don't do that to ourselves, right? We so, see failure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's that becomes our focus. And then that starts to in turn also shape our identities yeah. and I see that a lot especially as my kids are turning into teenagers the failures tend to shape that identity because they're trying to avoid not mm -hmm. go after certain things yeah. so avoidance takes front row as a as opposed to chasing it and when you want something really bad that's when you start like I mean podcasting or writing books or anything else you got to put yourself out there and you're going to say a lot of stupid stuff yeah it's just how it goes there's going to be people that are not going to like you they're going to make fun of you or anything else but all of a sudden i'm like i want to raise capital for this deal and i want that deal more than i care about a few people online so yep. go for it you can think that i'm stupid you could not like the way that i talk whatever that may be but I'm a real estate investor. That's my identity. I'm moving forward regardless of that. My desire yeah. is way outweighing that worry or that fear that makes you run away. Yeah. And I think that's a big, big part of it. You got to really have that aligned to where you can accept those things and say, it's just part of it. And I'm going to continue even with it. Yeah, That's uh hard. I think proximity is super important too, because if I'm in proximity with people who are doing a certain thing, like for example, my yes. mom and it was, okay, you do all of your own work. I grew up, you do change your own oil. You yes. do all of your own renovation work. You do all your own bookkeeping because you save money that way. And that's what I grew up with and that's who I yep. became. And until I was in proximity with you guys and seeing you and not just listening to the podcast because you know that's helpful and that plants some seeds and gives some ideas. But until I was actually in proximity and everyone can do this because you can go to the events and go to different things or you know health and fitness events if you want to do that or real estate investing, leadership events, things like that and get around people yeah. who are building teams and doing bigger things because yeah. Once you're in that proximity, you really start to get that identity shift and realize that you can do it too. Yeah. And then it becomes more desirable. Yeah. And then, and then, then like, you have an easier time. Mm -hmm. And that was my experience with yeah. it because that's when I really started to see actual changes. I, I, I agree with that. If you want to be a healthy person, you got to hang around healthy people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to work out every day, 
right? Doing it alone is way harder than if you are in a group or a culture of people that work out every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a normal part of life. And it, it's funny because when, when, I, when I started, I sold insurance, right? And so I was dealing with um, the business owners that had their employees. And one of the things that I learned really early on, because I was worried about not being smart or being dumb from school that scarred me, right? Because I didn't fit in and everything else like that. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm with these business owners, like, you're not that smart. Yet you're very successful. And that was extraordinarily beneficial to me. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of times I have, or anybody has in their head that that identity that you're trying to adopt, you can't be because you put those identity on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. you, you, you think that they're somebody that they're not. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? And you think that it's like you make up in your mind that these people are incredible or smart i know i did that yeah, they're exactly. a business owner they, they probably straight gpas <laughs> they you know all this stuff and they must they must have superhuman abilities which yeah. i i don't possess right because yeah. i i see my failures all day long and it's fine because all of us feel that about you i put, yeah. you, I put both <laughs> of you on twice. such a pedestal i was so nervous to meet both That's of you funny. at that event i was crying the night before <laughs> i'm like i can't meet them it's too embarrassing i'm never going to be able to live up to the expectation i need to go in a different yeah. <laughs> Tarek, dude how are you? I'm so excited to have you uh, on our show here. I mean, you have been on flip or, flip or flop for how long now? How, how long running have, have you been doing this stuff? So I shot the home video. Yes, home video of flip or flop in May of 2010. And season 10 just got off the air. So I started this TV journey about 12 years ago. And here's what happened. I know, I know a lot of people heard this story about burning the boats because if you burn the boats, you can't get back on the boat to leave, right? You're all in, yep. you're committed. So now I'm all in and I'm committed. And um, and here's how I did it. So I'd work all day and I'd, and I'd also be filming, but I had to find real estate. So I needed to find real estate that wasn't occupied because I didn't have, you know, two, three, four, five, six months to evict people. So every night around 10 p.m. till 3 or 4 a.m., I would drive by all the houses in Southern California that were going to the auction the next day. And the reason I would drive the houses was to see if any cars were in the driveway, if the grass was overgrown, if there was a bunch of mail on the porch, because I only wanted a bid on vacant houses. So then I would spend all night on the road, identify the properties that were vacant. I'd go to the auction the next day. I would bid, my max bid would be like 300,000. And then a fund would come in and offer 400,000. I was like, how in the hell am I ever going to compete? They can pay $100,000 more to me, right? But here's what I did. I just never freaking quit. I would go back every night, drive those same stupid houses, go to the auction, lose, and then go to the auction, lose over and over. And here's what happened. Every now and then, I have no idea why, AJ, but nobody would bid. I would get lucky and I would get a house. So then I learned if you take incredibly, incredible, massive action all day long, you're going to get lucky. If you don't take action, you have a zero chance of getting lucky. So that's how I did it that first year. I got, I got lucky through working my butt off 18, 20 hour days. Dude, I, so there's so many things I just want to dive into immediately. First of all, I, it's, 
I, I got to say, when, uh, you know, when we first met, I was a little hesitant, to be totally honest. Like, you know, okay, what does famous people know about entrepreneurship or investing or anything else like that? And then, dude, after getting to know you, I was like, no, like, Derek's the real deal. Like, he's a true entrepreneur. He understands investing and everything. And that segment right there, the, you, your story, I'm going to point out the five things that I think are the most important five things of entrepreneurs anywhere. And you hit every single one of them. And this is what I love about your story and just about hearing it. It's like, holy cow, this is, I mean, it's just so atypical for extraordinarily successful entrepreneurs and investors. The first thing is problem solving, right? It's, you don't have answers. Right. A lot of people assume that you go to school, get knowledge to have answers, and then you're successful. Right. That's not how it works. No. That's not how business works. That's not how investing works. There are no answers. You solve answers, and that's how you gain economic advantage, is because yep. you're solving a problem. Uh, the next thing was you just never quit. So even if the answers weren't right, Right. Even if you don't know the answers and you're not figuring out the answer, you just don't stop. Like it's just never stopping. And, 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 and let me say yeah. something about that. I hate to interrupt you, but no, go. what you said is very important because what I do is I try everything. That way I can eliminate what doesn't work. hundred percent. So when I try something and it doesn't work, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm like, now I don't have to worry about that anymore. Move on. Move on to the next thing. And guess what? One out of every five or six things is going to work. And then once it works, you double down, you throw gas on the fire, and then you get the hockey stick. I could not be more excited about our guest today. I think the world of him. He is not only an incredible investor, he's written multiple books, including The Wise Investor that just came out. He is a licensed real estate broker and co-founder of therealwealth.com. But aside from all his accolades and real estate investing, he's just one of the coolest people I've ever met. We have so wow. many similar <laughs> interests. So I'm so excited, Rich. Thanks for coming on, man. This is thanks, this man. Is one of the coolest people you've ever met, man. It's Seriously? like whoa. I know you, you know some cool people too. <laughs> well, hey, I, I don't know a lot of people that have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. No, no so. I, I don't either. Just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> My brother and me. <laughs> I, I I was having this conversation with uh um, a friend of mine who's outrageously successful, hundreds of millions, multiple companies, one's gone uh, uh, public. And we talked a lot about this. And this was the third thing that you mentioned, uh, first of all, is now we, we get trying everything. Like you, dude, the amount of things that I did and fell at, like I could stack this entire room up with, right? I had five that worked really well and I dove all in on those five, but all the other things helped me actually find the five. And it's hard to correlate that, but it's like, okay, I know this isn't the way. Why isn't the way? understand, then move on and you can recognize and get better. But the second thing though, that we talked about is you're trying things right, but you, you do things where it's like, it's hard to explain, but I, I think of it like demand first and meaning you almost create your own demand. So a lot of people think, oh, I build a business and then I go out to market and see if there's demand for a pro uh, product. Every time I read that in a business book or hear somebody, hearing, I want to vomit. I'm like, that is not how entrepreneurship works. You don't build a business. And then if there's no demand, you fail. 
there's demand and you build the business around that demand. Yes, you find the opportunity and yes. then you build the business based on that opportunity. 100%. And you talked about that and how you're like, okay, um, great, I got a TV show. Nobody would do that though if they didn't have anything to put on the TV show. You're like, I found it. Now I got to actually supply the TV show with the demand that they want. So now yeah. I got to go figure that out, right? Uh, we're actually buying a, a townhouse right now in Park City uh, that we developed. We did the syndication on this whole thing and built like 50 uh, single family homes and a bunch of townhomes. But it's right next to Woodward Training Center, which is the Olympic ski yeah. snowboard training center. And so our townhouse is literally right there looking out at the slopes with the half pipe and the jumps and everything. That's amazing. So we had to buy one there. So anyway, mm -hmm. I was just locking in and looking at, do I want to do a seven-year arm or a 30-year fixed? And, you know, we did the 30 year fixed because it's like yep. it came in at like 5.1 or something like that percent. And uh, which is, you know, it's like, let's lock that in because yeah. I, I just inflation is going to rates are going to keep going up uh, definitely through this year. I mean, the Federal Reserve, I mean, not that I mean, um, they're just they're talking about we have to slow down inflation and yeah. they they are actually have stated we want to create a recession. Yeah. <laughs> we have to. Yes. So. The Federal Reserve, it was, what was it, three hours ago, just announced they upped a half a point, the half highest point. increase in over two decades. Isn't that insane? And we got our our rate lock yesterday nice. <laughs> on that 30 year, right? Nice. So, but we're, you know, just doing the same thing, being smart. You know, Kathy and I got hit hard in 2008. You know, some yeah. of our properties did well, some of them, you know, that were in the linear markets, but you know, we had three properties in California and it was like a real tough hit on us. So, and we also had some uh, other properties that we we're building. We did short-term construction loans that we're like, oh, we'll just refinance out of it at the end. And all of a sudden what we're like, what Lehman brothers has failed. And, you know, we can't get loans anymore. No one, we can't refi and, you know, heavy duty. Yeah. So um, we're just, you know, buying smart. We're, we're still buying. Yeah. And we're just getting, you know, being safe or keeping, you know, 12 months reserves per property now yeah. uh, and just making sure we can control the properties that we own through any type of a downturn or any type of a rate hike. I, um, I need to send you a thread that uh, I made uh, today, but as well as ours, because um, our model's identical to yours. So we have long-term financing structures. Nice. Um, we do not do event-based investing is what I call it, meaning so many people in the self-storage industry are doing regressive underwriting, meaning right. they're justifying today's price because of a sale tomorrow. And mm -hmm. when that doesn't work out, it is catastrophic. And catastrophic. all of these young people in this industry that are raising all this money, they didn't go through 2008 right. and they don't see how this flips on them. And yeah. so like we have these people that are justifying insane prices and they have interest only four years, which then they plan on selling at a four cap. Yep. And a lot of people say, and you're like, you know, it may be a five cap and people are like, okay, a cap rate, you know, they're like, really, what's the difference of a four and a five cap? And <laughs> so I did this number and I, I want to share it with you So because talking about this. So I had just for an example to illustrate to people how powerful this is. So if we had a property 
um, that gross revenue of 170,000 net income of 100K to make it simple at a four cap, that's 2.5 million. That's the value. Okay. If you had a 10% decrease in occupancy, meaning it went from 98%, which is the average today, just down to historical norms, okay. historical norms, 88%, mm-hmm. and up just one cap rate, all the rest of the revenue, everything stayed identical, no reductions, no nothing. So if you had a 10% decrease in that and just up one cap rate point to a five cap, the value is 1.8 million. Okay. So that is a, what is that? Uh, over $700,000 loss. And if you put 30% down into it, you are now underwater. That's and the thing. That's all it, it took. Need, yeah. That's it. That's what deals need to be stress tests. And that, I think that's yes. what's not happening. And it's like, yeah, it, it was pretty easy to do really well in real estate over the last 10 years. Yes. And, and there's a lot of people who have been in real estate for 10 years. You know, you talk to them, uh-huh. they're just like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm killing it and everything like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're just, and they're running on fumes too. Fumes. As far as, yeah. It's, it's like, it, it, yeah. I mean, that's I'm, what I'm I, worried for him. I'm really worried too. It's like, I, I wrote in this, in this big white paper that I am putting out for our industry and with all this data, first of all, no one's talking about it. So no one is saying anything about the risks associated. And then I said, you have to understand that the numbers we're looking at at 80% of all the funds that have moved in, which is transferred out of the REITs and the people that had been in it for a long time in 2016, they have never, ever been in business in an environment that cap rates weren't dropping, revenues weren't going up, and occupancy wasn't rising. Never. How's it going, man? First of all, welcome to the podcast. Um, We're so excited to have you on and we got so much to talk about. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. My pleasure, AJ. It's a pleasure to to be honored. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of people don't think, you know, make that connection between real estate taxes and exciting in the same sentence. I know. Until you are going to hear this conversation. (laughs) You're exactly right. It's it's, it's mind boggling because I should preface this to start out you know, first of all, how this came to be or whatnot. Um, we have a deal, a new deal that we did in Kansas City. Um, one of my uh, partners and investors in the deal is Brian Murray. A lot of people know him from his book and all his real estate and, uh, dealings. Um, and he called me up and he told me, um, you know, hey, I've got a guy that I've worked with. You you need to really look at him because it's on accelerated depreciation for or cost segregation, accelerated depreciation on this project that we just did. And I told Brian, and we told Brian, we're like, listen, we've done this a lot, right? right? You know, come on, we, we know what we're doing here, right? We don't need it. And he goes, just hear him out. And that led to you. And then you called us up, and at the end of the day, we ended up with a million dollars in savings. Um, so maybe, for example, we're talking about this huge savings, you know, we're ecstatic, Talk about your background. And before you started saving people like me millions of dollars, how'd you become interested in tax savings? Right. <laughs> right. It's not like, you know, I, I when I was like a kid, I'm like, I want to be a real estate, you know, cost irrigation expert when I grew up. No. So what, what it is, <laughs> is I was a teacher. You know, I love my passion. I was really never into business. Like I didn't get into any of that stuff. I was really kind of a, a very spiritual person. Um, and 
kind of follow my passion in, in teaching and, and helping people at a nonprofit organization for a while. Uh, and I didn't really ever even imagine like getting into real estate until, and my parents had a couple of, um, you know, they had invested, they had a few out of state rentals that, you know, they were doing you know, single families and stuff like that. So I, I knew a little bit and I had a lot of friends who were involved in real estate, but again, it was never my interest until about five, five, six years ago, I was looking for something more, you know, a teacher's salary is not a lot. And I was like, yeah. okay, let's see what else I can do. See if my, I can put my talents to use in somewhere, something else. And just reached out to, to a few friends. One of them happened to be a good friend of mine. I ran into him in the street, literally. And I was like, hey, I'm looking to do something else, like any ideas. And he happened to, his family had been in property management, owned a lot of multifamily properties for many years. And it was just a kind of random uh you know, meeting him on the street. And he's like, oh yeah, I've been working in, you know, commercial mortgages also for a number of years. Maybe you should just come and hang out with me and I'll like show you the ropes, teach you about commercial real estate, which he did. And I learned very quickly, picked up a lot, got involved in mortgages for a little while, did some real estate brokering, single families and things like that. Did a few fix and flips with him together. And just kind of getting my feet wet and everything. But my passion was always for like helping other people and, and teaching. And so I wanted to find some avenue, you know, some outlet that I could do that. Um, and for whatever reason, again, it was just a random occurrence. The same guy introduced me to another friend of his who was working for this company, Madison Commercial Real Estate. It's a big company based in New Jersey, a national title company, you know, 1031 exchanges. And they do cost segregation as well. And I'm like, this is really interesting. Let me hear about what this is. After the first day of hearing about this, I literally was like, okay, this is something I need to do because I then learned about cost segregation um, from, from these guys. And this was just a few years ago, right? I started reaching out to all of my friends and all the colleagues I had you know, met over the past few years in real estate, in commercial real estate. And I started asking them about this. And there was two you know, completely um, opposite reactions from, from the people I reached out. One of them, and this was usually like the very seasoned investors, people who had been in the business for 10, 20 years or more. They're like, oh yeah, this is awesome. Like conservation, we've been doing it for years, all our properties, we haven't paid income tax in you know a decade, right? Yeah. And that was from some of them. And the other react, and a lot of them were like, oh yeah, and we use Madison, right? <laughs> so like, okay, so it's a good, and the other reaction was, I've never heard of that. Never even heard of it. Right. There was like no middle ground. It was yeah. either you knew about it and you've been using it and pay no taxes or you've never heard about it. Yeah. And that was so fascinating to me. So I just took that and like ran with it, started becoming, you know, going on podcasts like this and, and teaching and over the years helping, you know, hundreds, hundreds of people, hundreds of clients, um, you know, save tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast today. Once again, big changes. Stay tuned. Make sure you listen to next week's podcast because I'm going to explain it all and we're going to walk through it and I'm really excited for it. Thanks, everybody.